TED Audio Collective. This is TED Health. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Today, we're listening to a talk from clean air advocate Rosamunda Du Kissy Deborah about the disastrous effects of air pollution around the world. And after the talk, stick around for my interview with health policy expert, Dr. Kara James. We'll talk about how air pollution is tied in with other health inequities and what we can do to address them. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to dedicate this talk to my three children, Fee, Mac, Anella, Roberta. If I stop breathing for two minutes, I will die. It is the simplest thing that all of us do unconsciously about 20,000 times a day. So normal that we forget that breathing is the essence of life. My daughter, Ella, Roberta, stopped breathing frequently and was resuscitated numerous times by me at home and in hospital by her doctors until suddenly on the 15th of February, three weeks after her ninth birthday, she took her final breath. Ella was a healthy, clever, sporty and funny girl. She had a lot of musical ability. At the time of her passing, she already played a dozen instruments. She was exceptionally good at football, cycling, skating, swimming, and dancing. 
Ella was a great writer, and she was also pretty good at art. At the time of her passing, she had a reading age of 15 years. When she was six, the simple act of breathing became the biggest challenge of her life. I rushed Ella to hospital 28 times in 28 months when she suddenly began suffering severe respiratory issues. She was diagnosed with life-threatening asthma at the age of seven. She was admitted into intensive care five times and put in an induced coma to save her life when her lungs gave up on her. It wasn't until after the first coroner's inquest in September 2014 that I learned that her possible trigger of her sudden illness was to do with something in the air. But at that time, we did not know what it was. Ella had one of the worst cases ever of asthma recorded in the United Kingdom, according to the pathologist who carried out her postmortem. We, as a family, we live 25 metres from the South Circular in southeast London. It is one of the busiest roads in the UK. I later learned that air pollution around our home was persistently far above the levels deemed acceptable by the WHO. On every walk to school, every bike ride, every time Ella went outside, her body was absorbing invisible toxic air spewed out by petrol and diesel vehicles. A second inquest into Ella's death just in December 2020. The coroner, Philip Barlow, he concluded that it was the excessive illegal levels of air pollution not only inducted her asthma, but it was the highest ever on the night she died. As a result of this, Ella is the first person in the world to have air pollution listed as a cause of death on her death certificate. Ella's story is unique, I admit, but her experience is shockingly ordinary. In too many countries around the world, air pollution exceeds what the WHO tells us is acceptable to breathe. Fossil fuels, everyone, they're killing us. Almost one in five premature deaths are linked to air pollution from fossil fuels. That is 8.7 million people a year dying from heart attacks, cancer, strokes, dementia, depression, stillbirths and miscarriages, and that's just the start. Children are the worst affected due to their lungs still developing. Air pollution stunts the development of lungs and brains. Scientists, believe it, are finding soot in mother's placentas, meaning unborn babies are directly exposed to the black carbon produced by motor traffic and fuel burning. Like Ella, 93% of children around the world are breathing unsafe air. The real tragedy of this is we know how to solve this public health crisis. We need to shift from toxic fossil fuels to clean, electrified, public and active transport. The second inquest into Ella's death made it abundantly clear Ella would still be here, alive today, if air pollution around our home had been within the WHO acceptable limits. Air pollution 
is an invisible global pandemic. It's a silent killer. Do you know what? Unless you clean up the air, you will never resolve climate change. Do you know why? It's linked to global warming, acid rain, effects on wildlife, depletion of the ozone layer. But for me, this is personal. Eight years after Ella's death, I still visit respiratory doctors with Ella's siblings who continue to be impacted by excessive air pollution. The WHO recently strengthens its guidelines and the evidence shows us there is no such thing as safe levels. Every country in the world must enshrine these new WHO guidelines into law now. I'm putting them on notice. I want every government to guarantee their children the chance to live a full and healthy lives, to be able to fully and safely breathe. Breathing clean air is every child's human right. Governments have a duty of care to protect their citizens. The fight to breathe clean air is real. When I say breathe life, you say clean air is our right. Breathe life. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten in a running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me. It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey, listeners, I'm back to speak with health policy expert, Dr. Kara James. She's the president and CEO at Grantmakers in Health. But before that, she served as the director of the Office of Minority Health at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where she led government initiatives to reduce disparities and achieve health equity for vulnerable populations. I am so delighted to get to speak with her today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start from the beginning. Why did you decide to dedicate your career to health policy? Like a lot of people in health policy, I was on my way to medical school. And as they say, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And for me, it was becoming friends with a neurosurgery resident who would come into our lab talking about patients that he saw, who he felt that if the health insurance company had done something a little different, maybe that patient wouldn't have been in the hospital. And it got me thinking about change on a broader level than just working with an individual patient. And I would say that I've always been thinking about those individuals who are underserved and how you work with them. But that sort of opened my lens a little bit to health policy and the opportunities there. So I want to talk a little bit about in the U.S., 
Why, from your perspective, isn't our public health system where it should be? And do you think it's possible to get us there? Yeah. So how much time do we have? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. One of the reasons our public health system isn't where it needs to be is I think public health has a messaging problem. And part of that speaks to most people couldn't define what public health is. We have the 10 essential services that are provided by public health, the multiple purposes that it serves. And that doesn't fit very easily into something that is explainable in a five, 10 second soundbite. Moreover, public health is something that when it works, you don't see it. And it's when it's not working that you see it. But I would say the last thing that is different, many people know that the U.S. spends more on health than any other developed country. But what they may not realize is that our focus on prevention first acute care is skewed. So we spend more on treating people once they get sick than most countries spend and less on preventing them from getting sick in the first place, which is, again, one of the functions of public health. Yeah, I love what you said about when public health is working, it's essentially invisible. And we've seen so many things play out during the COVID-19 pandemic, right, where the messaging really was off and people were having so many questions about what is going on here. So what would it look like in the U.S. if we had an adequately funded public health system? I think if we had an adequately funded public health system, we would see a couple of things. We would have accurate, timely data to help us be able to track and monitor situations to be able to get to them before they become a pandemic, an epidemic, or any other sort of a crisis. We would have well-staffed and well-resourced local, state, public health departments, as well as at the federal level. And we would have systems that allowed people to kind of talk across the different sectors. And what I mean by that is when we think about what it takes to prevent people from getting sick and to stay healthy, it's working across systems, schools, housing, communities, all of those that would have strong connections and reflecting on our health system and our public health. And lastly, we'd have a healthier population and decreased rates of injury and illness. Absolutely. So, Dr. James, is it possible in your perspective to decouple public health from politics? And should we? Today, everything is so politicized and becoming more and more so as we become more and more divided as a country. As we have seen in terms of the things that public health focuses on, water crises, environmental toxins, vaccines, they don't have a political affiliation. They are ones that everyone wants, needs access to. And when we think about one of the other things that public health does, which is respond to crises and some of the disasters that we see, those affect everyone in a community, regardless of their political affiliation or whether they even have a political affiliation. So it is important that we figure out how to decouple our public health system from the politics to be able to make sure that everyone can stay as healthy as possible. It certainly is critical. And what's at stake if we don't invest in public health? When we think about the definition of it, it promotes and protects the health of people and their communities. And if we don't invest in public health, those protections are not going to be there. And our communities at the end of the day 
won't be as healthy as they could be. Public health is kind of the equivalent of airline safety. No one really focuses on it until a plane crashes, and then we want to know what happens. And we don't want our public health system to crash because at the end of the day, it really is about the health of ourselves and our communities. I love that example. That's a perfect one. You really are only paying attention if there's a crisis and we can't function that way, right? What about on the individual level? What, what are the ways that people can support public health in their own communities? Yeah, so people can support public health in a couple of ways. One, learning about it, learning about the many things that public health systems and public health departments do to help their communities. Things people may not be aware of, like bike safety, where they have drives to give bike helmets or to help in educating kids on how to ride bikes and learning about their street safety. Things related to helping parents with newborns install that car seat so they know how to take care of their newborn. Vaccines, of course, working with schools to educate kids about nutrition and health and wellness. Years ago, you know, the Flint water crisis, understanding that they're working in that. So that's that's one thing, educating. And the other thing is to make sure that we are supporting. One of the challenges I didn't mention is how it's financed. So our financing for public health is not structured to go long-term and to meet the needs. It is kind of a crisis-to-crisis sort of funding that we have or one that is time-limited, which is hard to plan. When we think about budgeting in our households, you need to know how much money is coming in to figure out what the programs are going to be and whether or not you're going to get the funding or whether or not there's going to be enough funding for the things that you need is a challenge and we need to do a better job supporting our public health system in that respect. Dr. James, what are some examples of recent public health initiatives that you think deserve recognition? And do they make you feel hopeful for the future at all? So some examples that I think about lifting up the fact that we have an opioid epidemic and the data that was used to know which communities are suffering the most and how we've been able to identify resources to get into some of those communities. Some people may have heard about work related to an HIV hotspot in Indiana, where people were able to see that there was a cluster that was arising and able to deploy resources to contain that so that it didn't spread to other communities. We talk about seatbelts, making sure that we have seatbelt laws and that kids and families are riding in cars safely has significantly decreased the number of car accidents, fatalities that we have. And then the other thing I think about in, in sort of the more recent past, smoking bans indoor so that everyone can breathe a little easier and enjoy meals and not have that secondhand smoke. Those are all things that public health has really helped to be part of and to drive in public health initiatives that also involve advocates and community groups to help push for that through understanding how important they are. So when you ask, am I hopeful? I am. We have a, a long road ahead of us and it's an uphill battle, but I am hopeful that we can get there. I think that helping people understand the importance of it and how public health does affect their lives in positive ways and more importantly, what happens if it's not there, I think, can help sustain and encourage more people to get involved to help support the public health system that we need. Dr. Kara James, thank you so much for joining me today. I certainly learned a whole lot, and I really appreciate all the work that you do in the world. It's so important. 
Thank you so much, Shoshana, for having me. And I appreciate the work you're doing to help get more people involved. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna and fact-checked by Ted. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Maria Lagius, Michelle Quint, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.